Hello, and welcome to our quarterly podcast on financial transactions and transfer pricing. During this podcast, we have a discussion with specialists of the P2C network on the latest development within our practice. And today we will look in our crystal ball and try to predict what to expect in 2022. And we will look both to financial markets as well to policy developments. And I'm happy that my colleagues join me. So we have Ed Bagdasharan, Dan Pai, and Bob Ritter from respectively Sydney, London, and Chicago. And I'm David Ledure from Brussels. So first, within transfer pricing, we, we mirror financial markets and we have experienced a long period of its historically low interest rates. And now it seems that the low interest rate environment is coming to an end. So uh, what to expect uh, in terms of interest rates, but also in terms of debt leverage? Ed, if we start with you. Sure, thanks, David. And as you mentioned, as we've all seen at a global level, and Asia Pac's no exception, strong inflation is forecast. We're experiencing it now, it's forecast for 2022, which will lead to significant rate rises in the near term. You can look at even as far as my backyard in Australia. We recently ceased our bond buying program and some analysts are forecasting uh, multiple rises over the next 12 to 18 months which is being brought forward from earlier predictions. Broader across Asia, um, some central banks in Asia have also started raising their rates already to normalise monetary policy, with China being the exception. Uh, At the same time, if you look at Asia, there are record levels of deal activity. Um, You looked at the IMF releasing a publication that Asia is going to have highest global growth this year, mainland China and Hong Kong leading the front, followed by Australia and India. And with deal activity, they'll come more debt funding and and from a transit pricing perspective, greater number of comparables in depth of the market as we swing out of the pandemic. Um, At the same time, across Asia, there'll be a high level of maturities on corporate bond issuances in 2022, similar to what we saw in 2021 as well. So if you Package together the macro trends I just spoke about. What does that really mean for transfer pricing and intercompany financing? Um, well, firstly, we expect a deeper market for deals and refinancings across the region, and um, which will give us better access to comparables in 2022. So we feel the data will be there across the variety of industries and a variety of spectrums of data. And, and when it comes to obviously entering into new intercompany financing arrangements, amending existing ones. Obvious questions around, do you lock in fixed or floating arrangements? What is the tenor of the arrangement you're looking at? For example, does it make sense to lock in a lower rate today for a longer period of time? Or do you do something shorter term, such as more of a bridge financing arrangement as your business and your creditworthiness improves coming out of COVID? As well as the kind of markets you'll have access to as as markets open up and and what the terms and conditions of your instrument would be. A lot of it will hinge on how your multinational group is tracking, how your industry is tracking, how you're recovering, and what the new normal looks like post-COVID. And my final point is it goes without saying that, as we've talked about in prior podcasts, you should have regard, obviously, to your treasury policies, how your own internal treasury team is managing the changing rate and economic environment, um, how they're looking at markets, the choices they have, the terms and conditions, their debt appetite with third parties. Um, there should be a strong link around the behaviour of your treasury function to um, your, your, your transfer pricing and your intercompany financing function as well. So just a few reflections there, David. Thank you. 
Uh, Bob, do we see a similar trend in US? Yeah, thanks, David. So yeah, same thing here. Interest rates are on the rise. Um, yeah, I think just as of yesterday, uh, you know, Powell indicated that uh, he expects to increase uh, rates, which have been you know at near zero or zero for a while, uh, just to, down slightly from where they are expected to 25 basis points. You know, I think what's driving that is the situation in Ukraine, uh, coupled with you know, if you've watched the markets recently, we've had a lot of uh, historic upswings and downswings. But you know, inflation in 2021, I know you know it's been a similar trend around the world, but in, in the U.S., right, was 7.5 percent based on the CPI index, which was the highest in 40 years, and and, and even in January, it continued to you know, over six percent. So I think we're we're going to expect continued rate increases. You're already seeing that, uh, and we'll expect to see that to come. You know, I think one other thing we've noticed is, you know, with the rate increases, year-on-year debt issuances have been down. So I think we've seen that as a trend in the U.S. Um, and down quite a bit from, say, 2021 at the same time. But I think, you know, maybe unlike other markets, one thing is the U.S. is still a very big and a liquid market when it comes to you know, debt issuances. So I don't think from a transfer pricing perspective, we expect to see you know, issues with being able to find comparable transactions. Right? I think you know, they still have a very rich and deep market to find comparable, so that shouldn't be an issue. I think just some of the more recent stuff, too, is, you know, in January, you know, we, we did see, you know, sort of SOFR issuances and sort of term SOFR is coming to be. So I think, you know, one of the things is starting to think about how to price, you know, uh, these these sort of floating rate issuances is just the lack of direct market data, right? I think when transfer pricing, we like to have as many direct comparables as we can. And, you know, when, when you have a very new instrument, you just don't have that same history. And so I think now we're starting to get some of that data. So I think we'll start to get, get some good data to be able to, to price these more accurately um, than we did before. But I think, you know, kind of what to what Ed said, I think for companies and for the tax people out there, I would say having a look at your overall treasury and kind of cash flowing policies will be a good thing to kind of keep and maintain. I know we say that, you know, this should be sort of something that you continuously maintain, but I think we went from a trend of, you know, sort of some historically low rates and, and sort of issues around that to now rates on the rise. And so, you know, if you don't end up kind of keeping up with that and maintaining it, you may, you may find some issues. Okay, so uh, interest rates will increase. The big question is how much, uh, but also here's some, some good news. So even though there might be less uh, debt issuance going forward, you still feel pretty comfortable. We have sufficient uh, comparables. Okay. Um, ESG is an overriding theme in, in many fields and within financial market, we see a, a steep increase of uh, sustainable financing. We see it in various regions, but Europe seems to be a foreigner. Uh, is that actually the case, Dan? So it's interesting, David, with ESG across Europe, we are seeing, I guess, a significant number of sustainable finance initiatives and an uptick in ESG related funding. And I mean, there's a lot of drivers for this, as we know more generally, there's a lot of desire to make sure that companies want to borrow debt and investors want to make sure that those borrowers are, are meeting certain KPIs. And so there's, there's kind of two angles to this, good for lenders, good for borrowers. And that manifests itself both in the rates themselves that we're seeing in the market. So we see greeniums in terms of the rates available on ESG bonds or green bonds when compared with more traditional funding sources. We're seeing the assessment of not only traditional credit ratings, but also ESG credit ratings and, and the distinction between those two. I guess that the entire marketplace as a result then is changing. And in that backdrop of a, a rising interest rate environment with rising inflation, it does lead to companies looking for alternative sources or sources whereby they can limit interest rates wherever possible. And ESG would just be one of those additional levers. 
a bit like Bob says, though, at the moment, the data out there for us to be able to use for transfer pricing purposes is relatively limited. But that will change, and it and it will mean that from a transfer pricing perspective, certainly, we're going to need to keep an eye on this because there will be, I would imagine, in in the mid to short term or mid to long mid to long term, I should say, there's, there, I can see challenges around why would your intercompany financing not have KPIs which are linked to ESG? Why do we not look at um, ESG related credit ratings rather than traditional credit ratings for intercompany issuances, particularly where the group itself is borrowing on that basis from the market. So a few key things to watch out for, I think. Okay, thanks. If we now switch to uh, some repeat uh, trends that we can expect and some policy changes. Um, in, in Europe, we see more and more uh, case law, specifically on financial transactions and transfer pricing. And I think the, the German authorities have been very active the, the last couple of years uh, with some lower court cases which uh, raised eyebrows. Now, we also have seen recently some higher court cases in Germany. Uh, is the outcome still that surprising then? Yeah, so there's some interesting uh, cases, as you say, Dave, which have taken place in Germany. And it builds on a theme that we're seeing certainly across Europe and potentially globally as well. But this idea of substance and accurate delineation keeps coming through constantly through that pipeline of, um, of case law that we're seeing. Uh, now, the Germany cases were in interesting because I think the, the, the pressure was certainly around the German authorities wanting to look at substance from a lender's perspective and to look at the deductibility of debt in Germany but really with reference to an external lender with, with potentially limited substance. And that would have been a deviation from the OECD view. Certainly when you look at chapter 10, it's clear that we are asked to respect the uh, deductibility from a borrower's perspective. And really the question around substance is a question to resolve between the, the actual lender and then the territory of substance, if that is not the lending territory. And that is where the German courts landed. So this view, which was initially taken, that actually we, we can look at substance of the lender in order to, to restrict deductibility at the borrower level, that wasn't allowed to kind of manifest itself. It, the, the courts kind of put an end to that and actually brought things back in line with an OECD view, which is very helpful. And it means that you know we can continue to look at Chapter 10 in the right light and continue to apply that when we're looking at shaping policies. But it does suggest a trend, which is, to say to look more closely at the mechanics of an arrangement and the substance and the people part not least because even if you're not looking from a borrower's perspective that question about the lender and should the lender retain that return or should it go elsewhere still needs to be resolved um, but it does build on a broader theme as i say about delineation more generally and i think we can continue to see many more questions and many expert witnesses being brought into court cases to opine on exactly how would a a, a particular loan instrument have been conducted at arm's length or at market compared with how the intercompany arrangement was constructed. It's always interesting to see these expert views in popping up in court cases. Yeah. Bob, in the US, uh, we, had, we have been talking about the US tax reform uh, since a very long time. Uh, but where are we actually now and, and what will impact intercompany financing? Yeah, thanks, David. So, yeah, the Build Back Better plan, uh, which has, uh, you know, kind of come to be and died off and come to be again. Um, it's a matter of which day you're talking to people. But, but basically, we had uh, the state of the unit addressed. And, you know, basically what we've heard is it's back on the table. So, president and, and they're talking with Manchin again. And, 
you know, I think what we've heard is we expect some scaled down spending packages uh, that might minimize some of the things that were in reform, um, but that this is resurrecting again. And, and we may, if things go forward, expect something as soon as April or May. Um, I think the biggest impact that we had for financial transactions that came out of what was being proposed and, you know, was referred to as 163N, um, and basically what this would do is it caps the amount of, of the deduction for the interest expense um, to basically domestic corporations allocable share of the group's reported net interest. Right. And so basically to think about this very simply is, you know, what is the group's overall net interest expense? What is the U.S. entity's net interest expense? How does that compare? Right. And then basically there was a, a bit of a reprieve where you get to expense 110 percent of that. But anything over and above that, you know, basically would not be able to deduct. And, and the way which made this even worse is we already have existing rules in the U.S. around 163J, which have been in place for many years. And that was modified as recently as you know, in the TCJA back in you know, 2018, which had already kind of made this worse. And so we've already been going from a trend of, you know, there was this 30 percent of EBITDA, which now goes down to EBIT. And so the, the thing about this, which taxpayers were really, I think, throwing a bit off is that it's the worst of. So. It's it's the worst of 163J or 163N, which would be uh, applicable to taxpayers. So I think more to see is what happens there. But I think for a lot of companies, especially U.S. headquartered companies that you know are getting debt in the U.S. market, you know I think we we've seen with a lot of our clients that there's a pretty big impact on this one. And so you know I think a lot of modeling and kind of thinking about how you know companies may need to think about their debt structure as a result of this but you know to be to be determined if this stays in the bill I think the other one that's come up which is just to kind of let people know you know as far as what we're seeing in controversy and other things like you know for a while there was a big focus on sort of the debt versus equity question I think more recently while that's still on the table we've seen more of an uptick in focus on the interest rates itself. And so, you know, the issues and the things that have been coming out around that have been, well, we had chapter 10 for the OECD with this FT paper that came out a couple of years ago. We know where the OECD stance is on implicit support and how to think about it, but we really had no guidance, I guess, on the U.S. side of things. Um, what we have heard is that it is on the U.S. Treasury's 2021-2022 priority guidance plan. And they're expecting to issue regulations under Section 42 to clarify the effects of group membership. So I think that's something that, you know, people should be on the radar to look out to get more information on. Because right now, it, you know, there, there has been no guidance to date about how to think about it. So I think that's just something for, for folks to know from the U.S. side. Okay. It's especially this implicit guarantee uh, guidance. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see that. And uh, I hope it will be in line with OECD and not uh, deviate too much. At, I see the Australian tax authorities as one of the most sophisticated authorities, and, and quite often we see interesting views in court cases that also inspire other tax authorities. Can you expect new interesting court cases this year? Thanks, David. So, look, it's fair to say, and, and, and whether, whether it's court cases or just increased review activities, fair to say that activity around financial transactions, transfer pricing, has picked up across the region um as governments have been increasingly in debt and deficit as a result of the pandemic and transfer pricing and in particular financing uh being a key contributor to, to corporate tax receipts so as you mentioned the ato continues with a very strong focus on financing um with a lens taken strong lens taken on chapter 10 principles 
uh, moving through the concept of delineation, the options realistically available, arms and terms and conditions, and off the back of what we've been talking about on this podcast, least the best available comparables in the market. Um, and this is visible with our tax office having a rolling HA review program of our top corporate taxpayers um, across all tax and TP affairs. So financing is front and centre as part of those um, uh, part of those reviews. And I would say, David, it's a similar concept for other countries as, as well across Asia, albeit with with local nuances. And as an example, you look at Hong Kong, they, they continue to challenge their, their sourcing rules around uh, interest income received. Uh, however, at the same time, TP audits are starting to increase. Uh, we look at China, where the STA has mentioned that financing is one of the key audit uh, focus areas for them. Um, with a strong focus on uh, cash pooling arrangements and and high interest rates on in, inbound loans. And w w and there seems to be a, a direct effort by the STA to continue to build their internal experience and expertise around intercompany financing. And in Singapore, as you know, with relatively recent do uh, documentation um, rules in place, over the last two years, we're seeing more and more questions on inbound interest rates and requests from the tax authorities for a deep dive on the transfer pricing documentation and the support prepared to prove the outcomes are reasonable. So I would say in summary, David, it's there is a lot in Australia with the tax office, but because of the the, the macro pressures that tax authorities are facing, um, the, financial, uh, the financial transactions topic is an increasing area of focus across a lot of authorities across the region. And we'll expect to see that in 2022 and beyond. Okay, thanks. And, and maybe from, from my side, uh, to other items that uh, are not linked to transfer pricing, but uh, might or will impact also into company financing. Uh, it's first the, the big project of the OECD on uh, pillar two, so the uh, minimum taxation rules. So you, you might know the main rule is what's called the income inclusion rule that basically uh, at the level of your ultimate parent or entity higher up the chain, you have a top-up tax if a subsidiary does not pay sufficient taxes. But that main rule will be supplemented by some uh, other rules. Um, one of those other rules is what's called the under-tax payment rule. That's basically if you pay uh, an interest, for example, to an entity that's not sufficiently highly taxed, then a part of that interest will not be uh, tax deductible, so to come at the minimum tax. Another uh, rule in, in uh, the Pillar 2 is a subject to tax rule that basically says that there's no treaty benefit, so no withholding tax exemption if uh, the beneficiary is not sufficiently uh, taxed. And a second one comes from the EU. Uh, so there's a draft directive uh, on shell companies called uh, ETA3. And it applies to entities which uh, at least 75% of passive income. So interest is one of the passive income streams that it mentions. If uh, you uh, have uh, that much passive income, First, there's in some indicators of low substance that uh, also apply to treasury centers. So it's um, if these indicators are met, you have passed what's called the gateway test. And then you have to report and provide evidence on, on uh, whether you have the relevant substance, whether there are clear business drivers for a setup, and or whether there is a tax benefit. So that's 
all information that needs to be shared with the tax authorities of, of your uh, resident country, but it will afterwards be shared with all authorities within the European Union. So they will have a massive amount of information. And if you cannot evidence that you have the relevant substance, business drivers and, and so forth, if you can't do that, then you will not receive a tax certificate. If you don't have a tax certificate, you cannot benefit from treaty benefits. And so uh, you will not benefit from withholding tax exemptions or lower withholding taxes. So that's also a, a very, very important one linked to, to substance and business drivers of uh, treasury centers. Um, if you go to LIBOR, uh, LIBOR is a topic that uh, occupied us the last three years. Um, and still today, uh, clients raise a lot of questions around this uh, because it's continuously uh, evolving. Now, I know, Bob, the uh, IRS, US tax authorities have issued specific guidance on the LIBOR transition. What are the, the key takeaways? Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, in January 2022, we did receive final regulations around uh, LIBOR and the transition. I think a, a couple of the key highlights, and we did do a separate podcast on this in detail for viewers that would like to listen to that. But I think the main highlights, they're not that drastically different than what was proposed uh, in draft a few years back. Um, the the main takeaway is I would say any changes were, were taxpayer friendly. And, and one of the main uh, changes where the, the proposed guidance had this sort of fair market value requirement to make sure there wasn't a change in value. And the the final guidance basically kind of lists covered and non-covered modifications. And what I would think about this are, hey, if you do these certain sort of modifications, which I would call covered modification, right, that then you're fine, right? There's no issues and no taxable events. If, however, you do certain other things, which are non-covered modifications, then it you know, would be considered a potential taxable event. And so you need to look at those. And so I think the key takeaway um, is what there, and the main concern is that you know taxpayers aren't coming in and making a whole bunch of other changes to the debt instrument, right? Which, which would ultimately do a lot more than just say, I'm switching from LIBOR to SOFR or some other base rate. So that's the key takeaway. Um, so, so clients should basically, as they're making changes to their agreements and they're, and they're doing these things, they should evaluate and understand what, what is changing to that instrument. And then they can look to this list and, and, and use this as guidance. So I think that's probably the, the big takeaway from the, from the LIBOR change. So, so basically, if you try to neutralize the effects of the LIBOR transition, you should be fine. If you make some other changes, you're not fine or there are there's some consequences. That's exactly right. I think, I think the way, you know, they tried to do this and they give a whole host of what what is a you know what are in each of these areas that that taxpayers can look at? Okay. Now um, on the open market we see uh, uh, more and more the use of the successor rates of, of LIBOR. Normally they overnight, but uh, the the market likes very much the term structures that we had uh, in, in in the past. So do we see some emerging practices on the financial markets that we can basically mirror in uh, into company finance policies? Then. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of things here, David. I think it it, some of this depends a little bit on the currencies we're talking about. So if we split this into a few buckets, you have replacement rates which have no term structure, whereby effectively, if you want to create a rate going forward, you have to take the overnight replacement rate and apply that on a daily basis. And this is what banks will generally be doing. Often, even where there is a term structure, they might still apply this overnight rate on a compounding basis. Now, that might work from an external point of view, um, but internally, often the desire is to have um, a forecast of where the interest position will be 
for budgeting purposes and ETR purposes. And so not knowing what the rate will be for the next three months or six months is quite a challenging position to put groups into. So the next option is where term structures do exist and, and that meets that problem, it addresses that problem because we have the term structures available that is akin to what we used to have with LIBOR where you have a one month, three month, six month rate and that addresses that problem. But you still have this issue for rates where there is no term structure available. Uh, and as I mentioned before, actually some banks aren't even applying the term rates, even when they are available, they're still using the compounded overnight rates. Now, because of all these different mismatches and because many groups want to move their treasury policy from a current LIBOR rate onto a single alternative replacement rate, it's very difficult to do because you have those two options available. What we've started to find groups wanting to do instead is actually to maybe look at the swap curves and use those potentially as a base rate going forward, um, which is slightly unusual, slightly a different concept, but ultimately they are still a base rate, they're still a reference rate you can build a credit margin upon. But what is true is that swap rates are available for all of the replacement rates and swap rates are available for all of the different durations. So it provides a neat solution um, without then needing to modify your approach depending on currency. So that's one of the key trends we've started to see. Okay, uh, Bob, uh, another big topic uh, are cryptocurrencies and, and the like. Uh, what's new on, on that front and, and will it impact also our practice? Yeah, Damon, I think this would be probably similar to what Dan mentioned, you know, earlier and things we've talked about as far as they're in their infancy. But I think we are seeing a big kind of trend and uptick in cryptocurrencies and, you know, and the like. And so I think we can expect to see more and more around needing to consider pricing and thinking about that. And obviously, you know, unlike as I said before, the U.S. market for U.S. debt is very, very liquid and rich, right? Where there's when you get to kind of cryptocurrency and these other things, right, it's uh it's, it's very different. So trying to think about, hey, I think for most taxpayers, what what are we doing around you know cryptocurrencies and the other currencies? And, and then thinking about what does that look like, kind of looking forward and thinking through the future, right? Maybe, maybe it's not as relevant today, but I think this is a trend that we will see to continue and expect that you know, if, if you haven't raised the question, right, with your treasury folks and with the business, you know, for the tax, uh, uh, tax people out there, you should start thinking about this and, and start to kind of think about, well, what, what could be coming down the road that I need to be considering? Okay, great. Um, a lot of interesting uh, topics and, and discussions. Uh, my personal takeaways of the discussion is, uh, firstly, we, we're moving to a higher interest rate environment. So that's, that's pretty clear. Not sure where it will end, uh, but also combined with more volatility. We have uh, the inflation uh, going, uh, going up. We have the geopolitical uncertainty and, and the like. So that all will obviously impact comparability analysis uh, as well as, as the benchmarking. Um, another point is, Two years ago, we had uh, the big change age with publication of chapter X. Uh, nowadays, it's more and more applied by tax authorities with uh, sometimes deviating interpretation and, and also some uh, new interesting case law popping up uh, around this. And finally, that's not transurprising, but it uh, will impact into company financing. These are other initiatives uh, taken at various uh, levels. Uh, we have US tax reform that will have its impact. We have the uh, OECD pillar two. Uh, discussions as well as uh, this new uh, directive uh, on uh, shell companies uh, within the European Union. And uh, with this, I want to thank the three speakers um, as well as the listeners to, uh, to tune in. And I'm looking forward to our next podcast. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.